Hello and welcome to uh, Political Yeti's Politics Podcasts and Happy New Year. I'm James Miller and I am doing something very slightly different for this first podcast of the year, uh, hence this intro to explain. Um, I'm calling it In Conversation because I'm imaginative like that, uh, because that's what it is. Um, sort of inspired by David Axelrod's Axe Files, although I wouldn't obviously claim to be in the same league as him in any way, shape or form. Um, it's uh, a sit down and a chat basically um, in this first one with uh, Tom Greatrix who used to be MP for Rutherglen and Hamilton West um, and when he was he was very well regarded uh, he was um, a bit dour but very pleasant he's uh, generally widely regarded and I would utterly concur he was one of the good guys in politics um, but of course that counted for nothing come the general election because the SNP beat everyone, good guys, bad guys and everything in between. Um, so he's now resurfaced as chief executive of the Nuclear Industry Association because uh, he was a shadow energy minister. Um, I recorded this uh, a few weeks ago actually. Um, so we were talking about Hinckley, um, which is perhaps not as... Uh, uh, appetite as it was at the time but it's still uh, kind of interesting stuff I think mainly because I ask him kind of every man stupid questions um, yeah we talked about energy we talked about politics uh, we talked about party conferences because it was around the time of party conferences that we were speaking um, we spoke about the Lib Dems but I cut that bit off at the end because it's not really appetite anymore hence it's kind of comes to an abrupt halt um and we started by talking about uh, how he got his job because uh, the chief, uh, the chairman of the uh, NIA is uh, Arch Blairite Lord Hutton, uh, John Hutton. Uh, and Tom's a bit of a Blairite himself. Um, so you can hear him. Uh, <laughs> we get off to a, 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 maybe you might call it a sort of frosty start, I don't know. Um, but we. Uh, we were getting along fine by the end of the interview um, so yeah it's just a chat really uh, if you like energy you'll like it if you like politics maybe fast forward to about 28 29 minutes in and you'll get the political stuff um, and if you like it all then by all means get in touch uh, I am politicalyeti at gmail.com or at political, political yeti on twitter um, tell me you like it tell me if you don't like it but if you do like it and you want me to do more of these sort of things do let me know and uh, by all means suggest who you would like me to try and talk to next and uh, yeah hopefully we'll do some more of them um, and they'll get uh, you know better and more refined as we go along but uh, this is quite a nice chat to start off with so I hope you like it um, so yeah here we go listen in Hello, yes, uh, welcome to another Political Yeti's Politics podcast, uh, mixing it up. Um, I'm still James Miller, but this week I'm joined only by one interviewee. Uh, no jingles, apart from that one, uh, just a chat. Um, my guest is Tom Greatrix, uh, Labour MP for Rutherglen and Hamilton West when I first met him now Chief Executive of the Nuclear Industry Association at a, uh, fair to say, very interesting time for the nuclear industry, uh, especially given the stooshy over uh, Britain's new nuclear plant at Hinkley, which got 
approved uh, recently. Uh, hello, Tom. Hello. Good morning. Um, can I start with like the meanest question? Mm-hmm. How did you get this job? How did I get this job? Um, I applied for it and I had interviews and at the end of the interviews they offered me the job. Did the fact that Lord John Hutton, king of one of New Labour grandees, is the chairman He's have the anything chairman. to do yeah, with yeah. it? Um, he wasn't anything to do with it um, until the final interviews and the final interviews, so the earlier rounds of interviews he wasn't involved. Um, are you worried it looks a bit dodgy? No. New Labour people, because he, he, didn't he like sign off Hinckley in the first instance? No, he was the Secretary of State for Business, and I can't remember what the department was called at the time, when in... Um, when there was the uh, move towards uh, having nuclear as part of the mix for the future, but not on any specific project. So the process for identifying sites and all that sort of stuff was when he was in that department, which preceded um, DEC, so before DEC existed, it was part of the old, old business department, which I can't remember what it was called now. It might have been called Burr or something, I think. And that, oh, it was, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, had right. a few different names at yes, different indeed. times. and uh, and now an interesting one now. Not anything at all? That no one can say. How do you say it? Apparently, it's yeah. Bayes. Right. That's, was it Business, Energy, and Business, Industrial Energy, Strategy? Industrial Strategy, yeah. Um, it's obviously Bees. That's what everyone... Yeah, well, we start with Bees, and then I was at something a few, a few days ago where um, uh, I was informed by people who've had these conversations with senior officials that actually oh, it's Bayes, which we call... Got nothing else. Not like they've got anything um, else to worry themselves no, with, well, is it? you know, get the important things done. Indeed. Um, how does it work with somebody like you and him in terms of being mad for nuclear because I mean is this just a job of being a chief exec or presumably you have to be in favour of nuclear energy well, so you yeah, know yeah. when you were shadow minister were mm-hmm. you secretly mad for nuclear energy I was always energy? always um, very openly on the Labour Party policy was and actually still is and trade union support for nuclear being part of the mix because it provides things that other Forms of electricity generation can't and don't. It's not us, you know, answer to everything in itself, but it makes it very, very hard to get anywhere near meeting our, our carbon emission commitments and having a reliable, secure energy supply without nuclear being part of it. So, if you had become in a parallel universe, Labour won the last election, you became mm-hmm. energy minister. Mm-hmm. Would you have been mad for nuclear? You'd be going, yeah, Hinckley's brilliant. Sign well, it off now. We would have been. I'm sure we would have been wanting to ensure that we got new nuclear power stations built because. Uh, all but one of our power, nuclear power stations currently will be retired by 2030. So given you are essentially lobbying for Hinckley now, if you had been energy minister, would you have signed it off quicker? Would you have joined? Yeah, brilliant, whatever it takes, get the thing doing. Well, I'm trying to, what happened pre, so pre the general election, where, where it got to was that um, the strike price had been agreed, because that was, yeah. Ed David negotiated that. Um, and uh, then the state aid, the process of it going through the uh, consideration of state aid had happened um, yeah. prior to the general election. That was sort of late 2014. But all the 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 uh, involvement and the investment in from CNNC and the Chinese happened was agreed in October 2015. So uh, after I left Parliament, so yeah. it may well have been in, in a different place. You know, it's yeah. quite hard to sort of. But you know, I would have been, um, and I think it doesn't really matter who it would have been. Actually, if there'd been a, a Labour government, would have been very keen to ensure that we made sure that we we weren't increasing our carbon emissions and we were maintaining, ensuring we had a 
uh, you know, a secure and reliable source of power, and that's what nuclear is able to provide. Is carbon emissions the key to all this? Because, as you say, right, all the nuclear power plants are sort of coming towards the end of their natural life. Most. There's one size will carry on until um, late 2030s, but yeah, all the rest. But that, I don't know how long, how long is a nuclear life? Um, well, that sounds, that's, 2030 doesn't sound that far. I suppose it is. Most, 14 years away, all right. Well, most nuclear power stations, no, new nuclear power stations will last, as and will be generating power for at least... 60 years probably more in reality right. most of those that um, we currently have were um, built in the um, with one or two exceptions that are going to get to the 2030 to, to around about 2030 so uh, uh, Torness in the east of Scotland will, will go to 2030 which is one of the newer yeah. more recently built but that, that was built in the 1980s so, but how did you get to, how did we get to this situation where they're all running down as it were because if nuclear was such a good idea Presumably, you just keep a rolling program of building new nuclear stations. Well, that's what we got to a position where everyone yeah. was everyone was anti-nuclear. When I was growing up, nuclear was like really dangerous and it was going to block the world and it was a really bad thing and we should try and avoid it. Well, what that happened not- in um, uh, and we sort of started that process, starting to renew them and built Sizewell. Yeah, um, and that was the time when um, when Margaret Thatcher was prime minister and um, uh, What's his name? Howell, who's Lord Howell now, um, right. was the energy secretary. But then the gas price fell, and there was a dash for gas. Uh-huh. Um, but that was at a time which carbon emissions and the need to res- uh-huh. weren't really wasn't really understood, and gas was cheaper. But then, subsequently, what's happened at various points? Gas prices have increased, and you know, so even even if you wanted to, even if you didn't think carbon emissions was in any way important, you can completely ignore it. It is a pretty foolhardy thing to do to be overly um, reliant and overly exposed to the volatility of fossil fuel prices in which in you know a global commodity market that you, no government can control but it wasn't just about cash was it I mean there has been a culture change in terms of how people react and feel about nuclear. yeah well I think we've also had now in the UK um, 60 years plus of mm-hmm. um, nuclear power stations generating power that as a you know significant part of our of our mix and that I think people particularly in the communities uh, close to and around those power stations understand the difference between some of the um, some of the, uh, the claims that are sometimes made in the reality of, of living in a community near a power station and they, they work very effectively and safely and they have done for a, a long period of time they you know that technology is perfectly able to continue to do so here's a theory um, the hippies have got a new thing to focus on. Like back in the 70s and 80s, they didn't have to worry about carbon emissions because we didn't mm. really know about greenhouse gases and all that sort of mm. stuff. So um, they were all worried about nuclear and how it was going to blow us all up and the waste. Um, and then carbon emissions have come along and now they kind of trump fears about nuclear. Well, so, it's certainly true. There's a number of people who, I suppose, would describe themselves as environmentalists and environmentalist academics who have changed their view in the last you know, decade or yeah. more on nuclear um, because yes the biggest um, threats to the environment and to uh, the planet it's not it's an exaggeration to say is, is, um, is the consequences of, uh, of climate change arising from ever higher levels of, of carbon emissions that's why you've got that's not it's Donald Trump that's well you know that those things are not necessarily unconnected in the sense that okay. he decides to change their the U.S.'s position in relation to, uh, uh, to to what was agreed at Paris and various other things, you yeah. know. So, um, so you've got to, if your preeminent goal is to reduce carbon emissions, you've got to look at how you can do it. It's not just about 
producing electricity, it's also about the amount of carbon you get from transport, you get from housing, you get from industry. Yeah. It's, it is a massive task and it's, I think it's sometimes underestimated and the scale and scope of that task is underestimated by uh, some of those who have a particular almost ideological objection to one particular power source. Um, and we've got, you know, we've got a lot to be able to do and you know, just practical purposes to be able to do that without, uh, while ignoring what has provided and continues to provide now 20% of the power without any carbon emissions in a way which means it can complement other sources of low carbon power which currently are more expensive but may uh, in time end up being cheaper but are not able to deliver uh, reliably and constantly. Right, and this is where Hinkley comes in because it's going to provide base load. Yeah, it's going to provide a, you know, a, well, a base from which you can then build all your electricity needs upon, and it's going to cost eighteen billion quid to construct. Is eighteen billion pounds? That's yeah. a lot of money, isn't it? It is, yeah. But it's uh, also something that will produce, you know, seven percent of our electricity requirements for sixty years, and probably in reality, longer than that, probably is more like seventy years. What do we get for eighteen billion? Do we get cheaper bills? So what we get is uh, uh, electricity that's generated in a way which has a very low and predictable fuel cost, which you also get with renewables, mm-hmm. um, where there isn't a fuel cost, uh, which means that fluctuations in those prices and the impact that, that then has on what consumers and businesses pay is taken out of the equation. Mm-hmm. You get uh, electricity which is generated on these shores, so you're not having to uh, concern yourself about energy security in relation to where your electricity comes from mm-hmm. to the same extent and you get electricity which um, is able to be available the whole of the time which you can't get from other sources other than those which um, have a significant carbon emission so it's like with everything else it's maybe a little bit you know dull in a way but it's always about a balance so you don't and get cheaper bills you get more predictable bills well you do you get it depends what you're comparing it to if you're comparing it to uh, gas power stations now Today, yeah. you can build a gas power station um, relatively quickly. Yeah. Um, you know, there's one being built on, in Manchester. I think it's taken three and a bit years. So, but then you've got to buy the gas to mm. burn okay. to produce the power. So, even if you didn't think there was any concern about carbon emissions at all, then the there is the price of that gas that you're then burning is a significant part of how much the electricity costs. And in last week. Mm-hmm. on Wednesday last week because there wasn't very much wind it was very warm in the southern part of the country where the biggest demand is yes, it which was. meant there was quite a lot of demand on electricity it's not only when it's cold you get a high demand because people more you know uh, different appliances working harder and more air conditioning offices etc etc all those things all really? added to demand meant that, that for on the uh, day ahead price of electricity reached £160 a megawatt hour there must be more demand for heating in this country than there is for air conditioning um, no, but to, but just taking last week for example, that day last week, yeah, where you had um, it wasn't windy enough for there to be for a lot of wind yeah. generated power to be able to be produced. But compared to a cold day in the winter, that can't be that. No, it's not. But the, it, but it, well, it, it actually, but that 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 I suppose snapshot price for that day right. is a good indicator of um, because when demand is at its highest, that's when you get gas-fired and other fire power stations that respond quickly, but there's an eco- economic cost to that, significant economic cost. So, you know, when people talk about, um, so, say, well, look, the strike price is twice the current wholesale price. The current wholesale price is influenced particularly by two things. One is that the gas price at the moment is low. In the last five years, yeah. it has fluctuated massively. The 
electricity price has been between £30 and £120 a megawatt hour in the last five years. And you've got to compare to 10 years' time and then the 35 years after that. And actually, the reality is nobody can tell you exactly what the gas price is going to be for that period of time. People well, make their estimates and guesses, um, but that you know isn't a very sensible basis to plan your energy policy on, unless we want to end up repeating some of the mistakes we made in the past. And then the last dash for gas, mm-hmm. um, which curtailed the you know the the um, renewal of previous nuclear power stations, was done on the basis that the wholesale price of gas was very low. We had North Sea discovery, so therefore the yeah, all right, yeah. We are now importing more gas than we produce in the UK. So oh. in terms of uh, you know, gas resource that's available to us without having to go through other markets, that's a very different picture now than it was then. True. And um, you've also got climate commitments to, um, you know, to be cognizant of. Yes. Um, just to put you right, nobody talks about the strike price being more on the wholesale price because nobody talks like that. Strike, well, actually, price, strike price is just a term that energy nerds have made up to sound cool. No. Come on, strike price. It sounds really trendy. And it's not. It's just a the, number. Um, well, the number of times I have read in almost every single newspaper over the past three months this um, statement, it's, you know, we're paying for electricity at strike price twice the current. That's because strike price sounds cool to journalists yeah, as well. But they don't really know what it is. But, well, I would suggest they're not really... Either they do know, and it's a good shorthand because you say it's one figure is twice the other, um, or they don't necessarily completely understand that the comparison is not particularly valid because there is no freeway of building the infrastructure to generate electricity. And the reason, one of the reasons that the current wholesale price is low, apart from the low price of gas, is also because 20% of it comes from power stations, nuclear power stations, getting towards the end of their lives, that the cost, the capital cost has already been you know, already being paid for because they're old. Um, you can't, you know, you can't replace infrastructure with nothing and then assume that you're going to get the same same price of electricity. Um, no, that's nonsense. All journalists know what they're talking about. They do exactly yeah. every all times. Yes, how dare you? Yeah. Um, Hinkley, right? Okay, so we get lots of uh, safe electricity in the sense that it's sort of uh, reliable uh, until it blows up. Is it going to blow up? Um, that always it's used all, to be the worry all, with the nuclear power stations, wasn't it? That well, was the, the concern, was that they could blow up. The, um, quite rightly, the level of um, regulation uh, when you design, build and operate a nuclear power station in this, in this country is incredibly high. It's the best Good. regulatory system in the, in the world, widely acknowledged as that. And that's one of the reasons why the you know, Chinese and others have been wanting to um, invest in the UK, because getting the the sort of endorsement of the UK regulator is a very valuable uh, very valuable thing internationally as a sort of a, a kite mark of, um, of, of yeah. highest possible standards. And you know, you look at the period of the last 50, 60 years we have in this country had uh, reliable nuclear power from a range of different power stations in, in different places in the One UK. One of them blew up once though, didn't it? Sellafield blew up, didn't it? Before no, it became Sellafield. Calder Hall, there was... Um, there was, I think there was a fire at one point, but it never got to a point where there was any uh, contamination. Um, waste, that was the other yeah. big concern, is that these things produce this horrible waste, which you then have to bury for hundreds of years, or drop in the sea or whatever. Is that still the case? Are we just ignoring that now and going, well, um, it's a fact of life? There's The um, stockpile of waste that we have is much, much larger than what new, new nuclear power stations will, will generate much less high-level waste. Yeah. So in volume terms, it's relatively small. So 
it will not be at the end of the operation of you know the planned new nuclear power stations. I think we'll only make up five percent of our stockpile. Right. Some of that stockpile could be potentially used as a fuel for other power stations. Okay. And there's an issue there about you know how you use that um, plutonium um, and it's potent. There are reactor designs you can use that as a fuel. But but it still in produces end, this nasty stuff. There will be well, there will need to be a um, what's called a, a geological um, uh, disposal facility. A which, big hole, which is yeah, it is. You know, you'll be uh, buried in a way that is means it's um, uh, incapable of being um, uh, being reached. And it's the same as I mean, this is internationally standard. It's what it's what's interesting. If you look, well, I think it's interesting. You might not, but um, if you if you look at uh, both Finland and Sweden in the recent past, yeah. both um, countries, Scandinavian countries that have got very low carbon emissions, partly because of they've got a significant. Uh, proportion of their power is generated from nuclear power. Um, both of those countries um, have uh, been through a process of uh, of identifying a site, and uh, I think in Finland it is now just starting to be built. And that is yeah. the same as will happen internationally. And that's the you know there's a lot of science and research behind about what is where the most geological uh, geologically appropriate place to have that, and then you get you get a you have to it will work in the UK on the principles of voluntarism, but in the meantime, um, the uh, the high level waste, which as I said is is small in volume, is able to be um, safely stored at ground level until that facility is available. But it's a headache you don't have with renewables. How many wind turbines could you buy for eighteen billion quid? Um, Loads. Well, you could buy if you wanted to buy electricity generated from the biggest offshore wind farm in the UK which uh, was approved during the course of the summer it's £140 a megawatt hour yeah I don't want to buy electricity I want to buy wind turbines so you know instead to, of actually buying a power station I want what, to buy wind turbines but what do you want to buy them for to generate, to generate electricity just, and must, the wind must blow always somewhere in Britain the wind must be blowing so no, it doesn't just like, I mean that's it must do somewhere there is, there is um, you know there are some places that are windier than others yeah. um, and that's obviously where you know people that want to develop uh uh, both onshore and offshore wind farms will, will try to um, you know secure permission to do that in those places but they both although it's wind tends to be windier offshore and onshore yeah they both have the same problem which is they are not able to generate power the whole time but surely right you i don't know 18 billion and they cost more they cost could, a lot more you currently. could buy hundreds of thousands of wind turbines for 18 billion quid and just put them all the way around the coast yeah, but and it's always going to be windy somewhere if it's not windy in Scotland it's windy in Cornwall right? but eight, that, the 18 billion pounds to build the power station yeah is it's not that isn't anything that the consumer or the public are paying true the developer are paying that what the consumer pay, will pay is for the electricity and the gap between whatever the market price of electricity and that strike price is that's that the difference between those two figures is what will, is what the consumer will pay, and that's exactly the same for renewables for onshore and offshore wind. The difference at the moment is all of the offshore wind uh, that's currently being built has been uh, agreed at prices much higher per megawatt hour than Hinkley. But that would change if you had eighteen billion to invest in renewables. That would bring down the price of renewables. Well, EDF, EDF, who uh, have raised and raising the money to build Hinkley yeah also invest significantly in they do a lot of wind as well you know they're not yeah there's different generators have different portfolios so you've got SSE for example who do 
wind and gas. Yeah. yeah. EDF do um, mostly wind and nuclear. Yeah. You know, you've got different mixes that different things that, you know, different different utilities or different generators, All right, their I business models are different. But there is no, but the electricity that you have to buy at the end of it, currently from offshore wind, is more expensive than nuclear. But even if it wasn't, even if and there's an argument to say that, you know, in the 2030s it might be cheaper. Yeah. And it might be. I mean, it's a it's an interesting argument to look at how far you can continue to reduce costs um, uh, that, that, would, that would need to happen. But even if you, even if you said that was possible, mm-hmm. it doesn't give you what nuclear is able to give you in terms of that baseload power. And it's not to say that's anything against um, uh, offshore wind or renewables generally. It's about ensuring that you've got a range of different technologies that provide you, in an overall sense, with a reliable power system. And you can do quite a lot of that with renewables, but yeah. you need to have something to underpin it. Batteries. Invest and your 18 billion in super batteries well, that look, can store up the power from wind and sun and then spit it out still, when needed. You still need to generate it to be able to store it. Yeah. It's always windy or sunny somewhere. I mean, I suppose the question no, is, could, you we, put? could you ever realistically go completely or very close to completely renewable in this country or indeed in any country? Well, not in the time frame that um, those power stations that will be a th- two-thirds of our centrally dispatchable power um, will close down by, so not by, you know, not by 2030, possibly in the future. But you've still, you know, you still got the, the issues that you've got to find somewhere to put all of this as well. Now, in outskirts of London, Thames Water relatively recently put uh, solar panels, floating array of solar panels on one of their reservoirs. Yeah. Um, to power the pump house, which makes a lot of sense because it yeah. means it reduces their demand on the grid. When it's you know when it's sunny and it's, pro- yeah. it's producing power, it means they're taking less from the grid. Well done then. And that is you know there's that's a good thing. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think anyone would have any criticism of that. I don't think anyone, unless anyone who lives near there doesn't like the look of them. But mostly people would yeah. wouldn't have a problem with that. But that covering the whole of that reservoir, which was the biggest floating solar array in the country, yeah. would, was going to generate um, was about six megawatts of power, which yeah, that much. is, you know, it's a significant amount to be able to power a pump house, Yeah, but uh, Hinkley is 3.2 gigawatts. Okay. And to get that same amount of power at peak, even if you assumed it was sunny the whole time, mm-hmm. with those panels, you would need 11 million of them. So you okay. need a huge site, whereas you know a nuclear power station is able to provide power in a way that is quite concentrated on a, on a relatively small site. So you know you've got to take into account all of these different things, which is why, in the end, you know sort of serious commentators about this, they may have technologies that they like more than others, uh, but overall most people end up in a in a broadly similar place, which is that you need a mix to be able to ensure that you've got the the regularity of supply that you need for you know, for, for homes, for businesses, for um, for industry and for everything else. Why is it not being built by the British? Why are the French and the Chinese building it? Well, um, just because this country is rubbish? Because we we don't, we haven't had in the UK for uh, for some time the um, the capability to do so, but you know. Basically because this country is rubbish. Because, but you know, it's, you know, the wind turbines are from Denmark. Yes. Well, that's true. Um, you know, gas power stations are from other places, you know, pumps are from different, it's, there is not a. Um, it's a bit disappointing. Isn't it? 
Well, it, it is, is basically this country's rubbish. But there's also, but there is. I mean, you shouldn't um, forget or underestimate the importance of the supply chain. though in in a lot of this. So, yeah. of the value, construction value of Hinkley, sixty four percent will be from UK yeah, companies. Now, that's a range of different things. That's steel from Wales, which is good given where the steel industry is. Yeah. Now, I do a lot of stuff with uh, my counterpart with Renewable UK, um, and they you know, they will. Uh, some of their member companies were getting a lot of steel from the UK as well. So you know you need steel for both, and if you can get some from the UK, that's a pretty good thing to do. Um, there are pumps that are built in Glasgow uh, that will be in Hinkley. There's components from Rolls Royce. There's a whole load of engineering um, that is companies that are based in the broader Southwest region. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's there's a lot which. Uh, in terms of that supply chain that we can do to maximise UK content, which gives you an industrial benefit whilst it's being constructed and the process of it being constructed, mm. uh, as well as the benefit you will get from the you know the jobs both in construction and then afterwards in operating the power station for you know many years to come. And what are the Chinese all about? What's all this thing about the Chinese and the security? I don't understand this. What what secrets are the Chinese going to steal? I mean, if they're paying um, for it, then. They're well, going to know everything about on, it. What, on, what's Hinkley, secret? on Hinkley, China are an investor. Yeah. Um, just as they're an investor, actually, if you, you know, the, the power networks, the electricity grid in the southeast, east of England and London is yeah. UKPN is the company, or a, a, a portion of that is owned by. Presumably, if you're an investor, investors. you get to know what's going on and look at the plans and stuff. Well, to make sure that you're investing in something but that's not everything going to that happens in the, Everything that happens in the UK is. Uh, and again, I say it's quite rightly, is very heavily regulated. So, yeah, not just in terms of the design, you have to get through a process called a generic design assessment before any reactor can be built. It takes about five years. It goes into a huge amount of detail, including what issues to do with safety and security, as, as you would expect. Yeah. And this is right. Uh, that continues through the process of, of building and constructing the power station and then when it's operating. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the ONR, which is completely in the Office of Nuclear Regulation, which is completely independent from government. Uh, again and rightly so, is not some sort of pushover organisation. So, um, in relation to Hinkley, there are there are an investor just as there will be potentially new nuclear power stations in other parts of the world where Japanese companies. So, are what's investors. the security worry? What are they going? What secrets are they going to steal? Why? Well, why I'm not quite sure what is well because I think some people have a an instinctive sort of concern that you know there may be some sort of industrial espionage or something but I can't see what that is and I'm not no. quite sure exactly what the you know the, when people make those those statements and claim their concern I'm not sure what the detail of what it is they're actually concerned about and the other thing you've got to remember with, with China is that you know, as I said before with um, potentially in the future if there is a reactor design that, uh, that originates in China has to go through that regulatory mm. process before anything can be built and if that might happen at some point in the future um, then it's not really in China's interests to um, to you know to build something to effectively use it as a way of disrupting uh, electricity supplies in the UK. Actually, what it's in its interest to do is to demonstrate it can get through the UK regulatory regime, can build it and operate it, to then be able to market that technology design in other parts of the world. Well, that depends what you think China's aims are. If yeah. China's aims are to be a successful trading nation, yes, but if their aims are to take over the world, then, you know, yeah. that's the other thing, I suppose. Well, that's I would, I would um, suggest to you that they've got a very strong interest in being a successful trading nation. And they're always hacking iPhones and stuff as well, apparently, aren't they? 
I don't understand why they want to hack my iPhone, apparently. Apparently, we're going to be worried about the Chinese hacking our phones. Right. Well, who, why do the Chinese want to hack my iPhone? They, they, I don't know. They're I welcome to it. Really. I'm, you know, they're always hacking things, just stealing I'm not, I'm secrets, not sure allegedly. Is, there's a bit what of, it is the government will want to monitor my emails either, because there's nothing very interesting. Well, it's, all a bit, um, it's all a bit reds under the beds, isn't it, this uh, Chinese thing? Isn't it? Um, you are based here in London. We're in your swanky office in London. We're in, yeah, I wouldn't describe it as swanky, but yes, we're in. No, that's swanky, that's true. It's, we're it's quite an nice. An office in London, nice. yes. Yeah. Um, did you get out of Scotland at the first opportunity after losing the 2015 election? No. Why not? Um, well, because look, I, I, um, I spent the last 15 years of my life in Scotland. I got married in Scotland. My um, children were born in Scotland. Uh, they used to have Scottish accents. They don't. Uh, so much anymore um, but uh, it's nothing to do with me about um, how long would it be six months after the election my wife's job moved so we moved and it wasn't that um, I wasn't really much as I would love to have carried on living in in Scotland um, you know I didn't want to be in a in a situation where I was you know living in trying to live in two places because I've done that and in a you know in a role where you have to do that I don't have to do that anymore. So, moving to England, yeah. Do you does it, does it affect how you look at your time in Scotland? I mean, you know, I mean, in the sense of you were an English person yes. sitting for a Scottish seat, yes, which would have been normal to you because that's what you were doing. Yes. Now you're an English person in England. Yes. Looking at Scotland from the outside, uh-huh. do you well, sort of? I mean, I still got quite got. Um, Family in Scotland. We've in Scotland quite a lot. We've got quite a lot of members in this organisation that are in Scotland. Um, yeah. uh, and actually, the second biggest nuclear workforce by you know region and nation is yeah. in Scotland. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of expertise. Lots of you know big companies that are based in Scotland do sell and Renfrew and you know mm-hmm. people that recycle all sorts of stuff. Um, so I spend a fair amount of time in Scotland still. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wouldn't say I was disconnected from it. Um, I don't know how long I'll. You know, I'll be here. I'd, ideally, if I could, I would like to be living in Scotland because I like it. Um, but that's not what, that's not what I'm, you know, doing at the moment. So maybe in a couple of years, I may be back in Scotland. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't rule it out. I wouldn't. I wasn't sort of desperate to get away, um, far from it. But you know, circumstance and. Uh, Do you get a different view on Scotland? You say you go back there now. Yeah. You're not an MP there. No, you, you are. do. But you, yes, you do. I mean, it's. Um, you, I get a different view, not just of Scotland, a different view of politics generally as well. Yeah. You know, once you're outside of that, um, I suppose, bubble where you think and you feel as though whatever happens in Parliament that day is really important and significant. And yeah. um, I'm sure we've had conversations in the past about some amendment on some bill or something that I would have got very, well, as excited as I ever get, but, you know, trying to explain yeah. how important this was and you know I couldn't tell you day to day what's what's happening in Parliament anymore other than when there was something that was particularly relevant I don't um, so I'm not don't have the same level of um, I suppose involvement and therefore you see things more broadly and in terms of you know Scotland I sort of yeah, I see things from via social media and talk to friends that's not real life stuff but it's um, um, uh, but you don't get the same intensity of it does that, has that opened your eyes in the sense that once you step out of politics mm. you go oh hang on this is how everybody else views politics which is 
a slightly faraway thing that occasionally intervenes yeah. in my life sort of thing whereas when you're in it you yeah, it's the and, be all and end all. and a, you know a couple of times every five years you might be asked to make a decision on it yeah um, yes to some extent that's true and that's you know working in a an environment and in an industry which is you know largely led by public policy and legislation mm. um, so if people are in, who are sort of even you know involved in things that don't aren't aren't guided so much by that then I guess that's even more the case is this a political job would you are you st- are you still in politics at one remove no. doing this or are you not no no I don't no I don't think I am I mean I spend relatively little time with politicians um, these days a little bit but not very much current um, politicians ex politicians um, does the fifty four whatever you were Scottish MPs who were diff- you still have get-togethers. Um, not that I'm invited to. No, <laughs> oh, that'd be nice. Um, occasionally bump into someone, um, or you know, you know, occasionally might go for a drink with somebody, but yeah, not, no, not that, not that frequently. No, there's not a sort of should do. Should form a club, form well, a gang, get the gang back yeah, together. But you know, people. Um, I mean, I think what's quite interesting about sometimes people's perception and views of politicians or particularly from the same party, from the same part of the country, is almost it's a, you know, it's an amorphous whole. Mm. And actually, within that group, there's lots of different personalities, lots of different interests, lots of different, you know, ages and backgrounds and um, all individuals and, you know, all of whom are doing something else now and lots of different things, I would expect. What you're saying is you don't want to see them? No, no I'm quite Some happy of them. to, um, you know, if I see them, it's, it's nice to sort of, catch up but I don't don't just don't do it very often who don't you want to see who are you trying to avoid who am I trying to avoid <laughs> what yeah. come on I know I've, I've managed to avoid people I was quite pleased to avoid like Pete Wishart you know so oh okay I've been yeah. managed to, I've, from your own my life has been massively enriched by not having to see him oh poor Pete uh, he's in a band, you know. He's got a band. Yes. You know that? He's got a band. I do, I do he's know got a band, yeah. you know. He's yeah, like, yeah. made up of MPs. Do you, you heard of that? Yeah. Um, did you, I mean, when you were offered, well, when did you, when you went for this job, if you like, yeah. was it a conscious decision to go, I'm going to leave politics behind now? Or had you already made that decision following the election? Well, a decision had been made for me by the election. Yeah, but you could always um, sniff around and try to come back. Right. Face well, I, I wasn't interested in um, as something perfectly legitimately decided to do to try try to you know uh, stand for election very soon afterwards and yeah. obviously some some did and uh, some are in the Scottish Parliament now um, or stood for the Scottish Parliament um, I, that wasn't my it wasn't what I wanted to do yeah um, because you know I felt that I just wanted to do something different for a bit and you know how long that ends up being for I'm not sure but I was also very, you know, before I was started doing this job, I was doing other bits of work that were all around energy, mm. not, not nuclear, but you know, some on, some work on wind, some stuff with gas, different stuff I was doing, sort of on a consultancy basis, and you know, writing the best red column in Utility Week, and you know, important important things <laughs> like that. What's so that you know, my interest that developed from the time I was in Parliament in energy in energy policy is something that you know, frankly, I was. Um, didn't want to leave that behind, so um, I consider myself quite fortunate to be able to, um, you know, to be able to continue to be involved in in energy because I think it's endlessly fascinating. But you said for a bit. Well, there. yeah. Well, so I don't know how long. You don't know how so long. I've not done any job for longer than five years. Does that suggest, even if I might have would, might want to do it for longer, you yeah. will or would or want to go back into politics somewhere down the line? Um, at the moment, 
uh, I don't have any great desire at the moment. Um, I suppose I was a politician for a bit, so I sort of do understand that it's probably wise to never say never, unless you're absolutely <laughs> sure about never. Yeah. Um, and I wouldn't, because you don't know. You don't know what's gonna, you know, what's gonna happen. Have you been tapped up to no. to do anything? Because I mean. You know as well as I do, I'm not going to blow smoke up your ass, as they say, but you were talked up. You were very well thought of amongst your peers, amongst the press, um, and then you lose your seat. Mm-hmm. Um, does part of you want to go back on that basis thinking, I was all right at that, that's completely unfair, I want to go back and finish the job? Or, you know, is there, is there also an element of it's all very well being talked up, but then if the phone stops ringing, on whatever it was, eighth mm. of May, you go. Mm. Oh, that didn't really count well, for anything. Look, I mean, at the time in which you're in that, for of a better term, bubble, or you're in, yeah. involved in that that world, then you know, you, I suppose you you get some of that to some extent. And people that see you up close and might say, you know, express an opinion about how competent or how yeah. how good you are at particular aspects of that job. But you know. Parliament continually through the process of election refreshes itself and when you're not in Parliament you're not in that anymore um, and you know I don't you know I, I think if I had have if I had had been re-elected mm-hmm. um, you know in a situation where Labour was likely to be as now seems possible in opposition for some time yes. then I think I may well have got quite frustrated with that because ultimately the reason that I think most people um, uh, you know, who stand for office go into politics is because they want to be able to change things and that five years demonstrated to me just how, you know, I think once, twice we got quite close to beating the government on a you know, substantive domestic policy issue. We won a couple of votes in committees at various times, mm. um, and you know, arguably, you know, decisions. Some in some of the international decisions were may have been influenced. Some of them were whether free votes. But if you're in opposition, you're not actually able to change a huge amount. You can sometimes tactically push things and boundaries, or you can, you know, you you need a number of people in government or governing parties to mm. also have doubts before you can do very much, and. Over a long period of time, I suspect that probably will get quite frustrating. So you're a glory hunter, basically. No, so I, you'll go back. I, I if, you, if you think Labour are going to win, you'll go back. No, I don't. I mean, I, you know, it was it was a um, it was a privilege to be elected. I enjoyed particularly a lot of you know a lot of the stuff I was was able to do for people, relatively small things, but you know through constituency work. Mm. Um, but you know the the sort of two thirds of your time that you spend in Westminster, I think. Um, you know, all the way through the last parliament, there was a sense that no one knew what the result of the next election was going to be. There was a possibility mm-hmm. that there may well have been. I mean, not many yeah. people thought there would be a, a Tory majority. Thought there was even just in the run up to it, there was like to be a hung parliament, and that could have been all sorts of possibilities. Oh, yeah. So, the the um, you know, so the prospects and the um, you know the. Um, uh, What's the word I'm trying to look for? The, um, well, even at ten o'clock. On well, your, your motivation to do, to do, yeah, do that job and to take it, you know, in terms of parliamentary okay. stuff, to take it very seriously, was and to do it properly, yeah, um, because you could, 
easily not do that if you chose not to. And um, some of your colleagues did. Oh no, people approach it in different ways, but oh come on, they do. You know, some people yeah, focus very some much. Some approach it in a bad way. But some, people some of your colleagues did that. Any interest in you know trying to push on particular policies or yeah. you know the compromises that are you have to make if you're going to be on a front bench, for example, and those yeah. sort of things that ideally you wouldn't necessarily completely 100% mm-hmm. be convinced by. All that sort of stuff. That's uh, you know the motivation to. Um, to stick with that and to and to do it as diligent, diligently and as well as you can, um, I think is probably diminished if you don't feel as though at the end of that five years you've got you know you're in a position where you're actually going to be able to make very much different other than trying to hold someone to account. Um, do you look at your uh, successor, your vanquisher, Margaret Ferrier, and think, oh well, she's doing so much better than me. Now I see why the people of Rutherglen and Hamilton West mm-hmm. elected her. Well, I mean. To be honest, you I don't... You must take a close interest in her. You must no. keep an eye out for her, I think. It, you must do. No, I think um, I think she might have said something in relation to Hinckley a couple of weeks ago that I noticed, but other than that, no, not particularly. Because your personal sort of, level, you must think, well, I mean, she beat me. You yeah, know, you've got to hope she's doing a good job, sort of thing. No, and I do. But otherwise, I, you'd be annoyed if, you, if some numpty replaces you, you're going to think, that's annoying. Well, look, everybody does that. It's, it's a strange job in a way because you, you, everybody does it slightly differently. Um, yeah. And, you know, as far as I'm aware, she's, you know, she's doing it diligently and well. I don't know because I don't really, you know, I'm not living in that constituency. So yeah. I don't sort of, I don't see it close up. You don't have a Google alert for Margaret Ferry? No, I don't have a Google alert for Margaret Ferry. What's wrong with you? You're not human. I'm sure she doesn't have a Google alert for me. Either. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> um... Yeah, you said uh, you know the Labour Party's in a position there where it's not going to be going back into power anytime soon. Well, maybe, maybe. I mean, it's sort of that's what it feels like at the it's moment. It's not. Come on. Yeah, um, that's, that's what it, I mean. That is what it feels like at the moment. Yeah. Uh, we're we're in conference season at the moment. Yeah. Um, well, what's your what are your memories of conferences? Well, did you enjoy Labour conferences of of your last year? I didn't go. Um, I actually went away for the weekend with the family to the Lake District and it was and the weather was uncharacteristically very nice on the that weekend, um, at the start of the Labour Party conference. So um and, you know I didn't didn't miss not being there. But I think I worked out before then um that I have been at every Labour Party conference other than one since nineteen ninety four in various different countries. So and also my birthday is the end of September. So quite often, I would be at party conference when it was when it was my birthday. So it's a very sad thing to admit, but no, but is it? My no, surely that's first a nice birthday thing. was at Labour Party conference surely in that's a Brighton. Nice thing. I think it was. You're with the people, your people, as it were. Yeah, so surely well, that would be the best place to have your party. Also, you know, well, your birthday, particularly when you're younger, I suppose it probably it probably is. Yeah. Um, you know, you're talking about a time when it when um, uh, it was um, you know in the sort of run up to the sort of two or three years before the 97 election when there was a very strong sense that you know we were we were going to yeah you know, gonna gonna win and be in a position after you know such a long time out of government to actually start to do something um so yeah it was um so uh, it, and in those early years and it's probably also because uh, i was a lot younger and able to do it um there was a cult there was a sort of thing that quite a lot of people stayed up drinking very very late at party conferences like exceptionally late and mm-hmm. i remember one year 
Now, I think the conference was in Black. Yeah, it was. It was in Blackpool. And at that time, I was an advisor in what used to be the Ministry of Agriculture. And um, uh, we had a... I've forgotten who it was now, but I think it might be Jeff Rooker. Anyway, a minister um, that was going to uh, Fleetwood Fish Market. Yeah. About half past five in the morning yes. when they sort of come back off the boats and yeah. very sensibly because he's a, a minister and a, and a political grown up like most yeah. people Jeff Rooker went to bed at a reasonable hour to get up to be up early to yeah. get in a car to go to Fleetwood I being young and foolish didn't I thought I'd drink my way through it Push through, so yes. I was in the bar till about half past four um, you know quickly go get changed have a shower and get get in a well, get in a car, go to a fish market, and then you try better to, to be when you've been you drinking all night than a fish market. You try to keep your stomach steady in a fish market at five thirty in the morning. Um, you hadn't really thought that through, had you? I had uh, no, but I, like I never, at all. I tell you what, I'd never do that again. But you were an advisor in a ministry, yeah, and you weren't smart enough to think if I drink through and go to a fish market, this is yeah, going to be a bad combination. This doesn't speak well of. Um, Frankly, it's, uh, government, to be honest. Yeah, well, also, the, the Ministry of Agriculture was also the Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries and Food. Yeah. And the food and drink industry is a very important part of that. Well, remit. Yeah. So, you know, I was just helping to oh, ensure that we... Um, oh, I was familiar with a lot of the, lot of the products. Uh, the Scotch Whiskey Association or whatever. And, uh, late into the I think night. it was whiskey by the end of the night, yeah. I'm sure. But yeah, what's your idea of staying up late? Now? Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> I do well if I'm still awake when news night ends now. Is that quarter past eleven? Quarter past eleven. Oh, I'm usually asleep and wake up, you know, and having missed whatever it was that I was trying to watch. But you're going back to conference in your new role in this role. I am. Yes. You're going to stay up past quarter past eleven. I wouldn't. I don't know. I'd, you're I'd going to do glad. It's all about glad handing, isn't it? I mean, that's really what conference is for, isn't it? It's just a big networking know. event, no? Well, I don't know. I mean, for um, for this organisation, we. Um, uh, have a couple of fringe meetings, yeah. um, which you know, like a lot of other organisations, uh, tend to do um, on particular issues. And you know, there's some quite actually, you know, some quite interesting policy issues around decarbonisation and how you do it that we're part of as well. So we do some of that sort of stuff. Um, Come on, you do, that's not your that's not your chat in the bar late night. Let me tell you about some interesting issues around decarbonisation. Um, you'd be surprised how many people are interested in decarbonisation. I would, I would, but I'm sure there's, I'm sure, I'm sure there's plenty. <laughs> Um, um, so I will say uh, thank you to Tom Greatrix, Chief Executive of the uh, Nuclear Industry Association uh, not related to the fact that I'm sitting in a swanky office belonging to the Nuclear Industry Association but I'm still looking for a sponsor for this podcast um, anybody who wants to give me money get in touch I am um, politicalyeti at gmail.com or at politicalyeti on Twitter uh, or get in touch if you want to discuss anything in this or any other of my podcasts and uh, tune in next week for another Political Yetis Politics podcast. Thank you.